You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. In the previous episode, we looked at how the adoption of the heavy-wheeled plow, the Carica, was starting to change the productivity on farms in the Middle Ages. What emerged was a surplus of goods and a surplus of labor. Fewer people on landed estates were needed to produce the bounty owed to the Lord and to keep themselves fed. People were still beholden to the Lord and could not necessarily just up and go, especially not without permission. But now people were seeking the ability to be freed from the need to be working the land. And so people started manufacturing goods. They developed skills. Artisans like smiths and woodworkers, but also weavers, embroiderers, and textile workers suddenly possess skills that would come to be of great value and significance. What was happening was urbanization, and that's what we're going to get stuck into in this episode. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. This is episode 7, Getting Down in Town. From all of this progression and development and advancement came other opportunities, particularly for merchants. They bought manufactured goods from agricultural areas of production and took them to where there were people with money who wanted to buy them. Merchants would see and hear much, and so information moved along, up and down rivers, through towns and back, to people working agricultural land who would begin to hear more and more about other people, things and places, especially places where their goods were now being sold. But still with this surplus of labour and also goods, people then started to move. They started to head away from farms and towards these growing little towns. As the towns grew, themselves becoming large, diverse marketplaces with their larger and more diverse populations, they would then draw even more people towards them. Urbanization truly was setting in in the lowlands by the 10 hundreds. In the southern low countries, it was happening in a greater way than had ever been seen north of the Alps in Europe. 
the booming agricultural economy and the developing urban economies started to become interdependent commercial systems fueled by increased mercantilism. By the 11th century, the transformation of that simple scene that we spoke about in the previous episode, the scene of peasants and beasts of burden together working the land, had begun to show major social ramifications that were going to be absolutely world-changing. And in the lowlands, this was first seen in Flanders. It is worth pointing out, however, before we go to Flanders, that in the northern lowlands, above the rivers, the Meuse, the Waal, and the Rhine, the situation was slightly different. The counties of Zeeland, Holland, and Friesland, coastal, low, peaty, and prone to flooding, developed societies with different cultural influences than the southern, higher, more wooded, sandy, and inland regions. When this whole process happened, it was not really until about a century later that the effects would be seen in the north, and it would be in slightly different ways. So we shall return up that way later. But for now, the south. Imagine you've been born in some little hamlet out in Whoop Whoop, Flanders. You've grown up as a younger son or daughter of a farmer family. You have a bunch of siblings and the land that your family tills is not any larger than when you were born. So you will not be needed to work it once you come of age. You learn what skills you can from those around you, from parents, grandparents and neighbours. When you are about eight, you apprentice to the local blacksmith. If you are a boy or if you are a girl, you begin to learn from the most proficient wool spinner in the village. By the time you are 15, you are fairly adept at your skill. But yours is a hamlet far away from the busiest trade routes. Two days ride at least. Few merchants come your way and so, even though you are a good blacksmith or a spinner, there is nobody to pay you to do it. So... Eventually, you head off. You know that there are towns where one can make a living. You have heard of them since childhood. Hui is one. Bruges, Ghent, Lille, Ypres, and others. You will head to one of these. They had been sites of old fortifications built by the Counts of Flanders way back when against Viking attacks. But now, if you know anything about weaving or textile making, this is where you would want to go to get work. So countless people began to take their skills and knowledge and they went to where they could sell them. And that meant going to places with more people or to places where their specialized skills could be put to industry. As places began to produce goods, merchants would carry those goods to the marketplaces. Different factors would also draw artisans and merchants to various places. Places where nobles were already based, such as castles, were obviously attractive. If you make really good cloth, then you would need to sell that fine cloth to people who can actually afford it. Other like-minded fine cloth manufacturers would do likewise, and so towns would develop groups of specialists working together to sell as much cloth for as much money as possible. And as always, let's never forget about the church. Remember that surge in monasteries, abbeys, convents, and such that had followed the Cluniac reforms from the 10th century on? Well, these places also drew people to them. Abbeys and convents were full of nuns and monks, and they largely filled their days with prayer. But in the times they were not praying, they were doing things like copying religious texts, but also largely just making stuff. Textiles and other craft activities, brewing beer, 
making pottery and so on. These are all things that could be found done in monasteries and abbeys around the lowlands. Urban centers also began to develop around institutions like these. There were also countless other people who did not go to more populous areas, but sought opportunity in even more remote regions, going to reclaim land from the forests that covered the southern lowlands. This had been happening around Western Europe somewhat spasmodically since the 800s in what is sometimes called the Great Clearances, but in the last half of the 11th century, it took on a more systematic nature. The reasoning behind this perspective is that so many different parishes appeared all around the place in this period. It has been pointed out that most small towns in the southern lowlands today find their origin in around this time, as peasants took opportunities given to them by large landowners to go and create fields that could be worked. As people set about clearing forests in Flanders and Alos in the south, agricultural intensity ramped up and they started doing things like breeding pork. Pigs are great until there are too many of them, because they're pigs. They just eat, poo, and trample over everything. The natural forests and woodlands in the low countries that were not, in these years, cut down, were soon destroyed anyway, turned into heathland. But hey, there was now a lot of pork, which is delicious. Sheep were also crucial and provided the valuable commodity that was wool. Wool could not only be turned into general clothing, but also into fine laces and garments. These were products which had been long produced in this region, but which now became produced on proto-industrial scales. These fine goods could then be sold to the nobility or wealthy merchants or traded for other luxury goods. This traditional product formed the basis for what was to become a staple, renowned, and fairly standardized industry in the towns of Flanders. To go from raw wool to fine lace good enough to sell to wealthy people takes many steps, with more labor available. Due to all those people leaving the farms and going to look for opportunity, people could then specialize in specific skills that form the entire process. Spinning, weaving, carding, and fulling could all be done by people who specialized in that skill. And so this increased both the quantity and the quality of the overall products in Flanders. Technological adoption and improvement was always behind the development of these newer economic systems that were coming into being. Methods of flood control had also made their way south from Friesland into Holland, Zeeland, and Flanders. We will go into land reclamation in a lot more detail in the next episode, but for now, just know that on newly made polders, which are lands that have been reclaimed from water, more sheep could be raised and fed, bolstering this wool industry and the subsequent fine lace industry that by the middle 1000s were basically supporting these growing towns. We've already mentioned that other cities around Europe did already exist, of course, such as Paris and London and Cologne. However, what happened in the rise of the towns and cities in Flanders was different. Paris, London, and Cologne were the centers of great power, the capitals of kings, or in the case of Cologne, the capital of an extremely powerful set of archbishops. European royalty, that is, extremely important people with extremely important things to do and kingdoms to manage, tended to move around quite a lot. The court would travel 
and an established administration was required to stay put in the capitals. These towns in Flanders, however, did not have established central administrative structures working on behalf of a sovereign. It's tempting to say that their development had something organic about it. The people who flocked to each other had likely all had to finagle, convince, or defy their liege lords to let them go, to leave the farms, and to seek opportunity elsewhere. From the start, in the growth of these settlements, into towns, and then into cities, there seems to have been a rebelliousness, a striving for something that smelled a little bit like independence. That smell would not only linger, but it would grow, especially as the amount of wealth in towns grew. Commercial endeavor paid great dividends. Merchants who had become rich could stop having to travel themselves, instead hiring others whilst they stayed put in the towns. They could even buy land. These patricians became a class unto themselves. The nouveau riche, forming a base of power within these growing urban centers that did not rely on bloodline or family name, but on having a bucket load of money and commercial influence. Merchants in cities had common vested interests, so could eventually pull their wealth and their influence together for all of their mutual benefit. Now, the noble liege lords had to reckon with the fact that new power bases, apart from themselves, were becoming established. What had always given the ruling noble class authority were their bloodlines and their ownership of land. They used their power to solidify and gain more power, which they did through marriage, war, and politics. All of these things need money. But even if you might have inherited the best name and the biggest bit of land, you did not necessarily inherit any other actual wealth and assets. The resources that the land-owning elite depended on were, besides that land, the people who lived on it and were forced to work it. Men could be taken for armies with no right to refuse, and taxes taken to pay for everything. There was a constant demand for money from the bottom up. With the rise of towns and cities, however, and new market forces coming into play, Assisted by increasingly wealthier mercantile sections of the town populations, the relationship between the nobility and the rest became more complicated. Many people in towns would have been runaway serfs or free folk who had yet abandoned the obligations of their indentured servitude to their liege lords. It was, technically, still the lords' rights to go and claim these people back. However, Towns were full of individuals who had gone there to build new lives, to get work, to have families and futures. This did a couple of important things. Firstly, it created a sense of citizenry, as town inhabitants became attached to a common identity that was along the lines of, I belong to this town. This was even more so over generational time spans, once people were being born in and were growing up in those towns but it also created a market economy on which the increasingly powerful mercantile class depended. People were getting rich off the growth of these towns, and so it was in their interest to have all of these people in the towns living, eating, buying, making, and selling. It was in their interest to protect the rights of those living in the towns, and to cast off the arbitrary justice of the European feudal system. What you had then was nobles who needed money and large groups of people with money who wanted freedoms, which only the nobles could give. 
So simply put, the ruling nobility started to sell privileges to people in towns. The oldest record of this is from the city of Hui on the River Meuse, within the domains of the Bishop of Liège. It drew metal workers and became renowned for that industry, but it also drew spinners and weavers and winemakers. In 1066, it was granted rights by the bishop. It could build city walls, for instance. It has been noted that this charter was also heavy on the rights of landlords to reclaim runaway serfs. However, it also resolved that the landlords had to be able to prove the status of those serfs. So here, for the first time, the rights of people living in towns began to be wrested from the hands of their liege lords. Importantly, however, another major event was about to take place, and this would also have a huge impact on this whole social shift. The Crusades. The great culmination of the church's integration with all levels of Western European society was the onset of the Crusades, which started in the 1090s. Following Pope Urban II's rallying cry for true Christians to go and help the Byzantine Emperor take Jerusalem back from the Turks, various groups began to mobilize. Surprisingly, some of the first and most celebrated emerged out of the lowlands. Peter the Hermit famously led the People's Crusade, which was composed mainly of commoners and which set off before the first organized military crusade. Peter was a preacher from Amiens who rallied thousands around Flanders, Alost, Namur, Liège, and the rest of Lower Lorraine to join him. Peter was a heinous anti-Semite as well, and after the first group of about 40,000 had departed from Cologne, making their way towards the Holy Land, another group had left just after them. In the Rhineland, this second group committed countless brutal acts against many unfortunate Jewish people. In fact, the whole rabble caused trouble the whole way towards Constantinople. Peter and the other leaders could not hold control over the many different groups, all with their own interests and reasons for going on this venture. 4,000 Hungarians died because of riots committed by these pilgrims, and they sacked towns throughout the Balkans. Peter abandoned them just past Constantinople. And this pilgrimage of commoners, many of them from all around the lowlands, met its doom near Nicaea when they came up against the Turkish army. The so-called First Crusade, which followed Peter's People's Crusade, was a great militarized mobilization of princely forces from around Christendom. It consisted of four armies, and one was the army of Godfrey of Bouillon, the Duke of Lower Lorraine, i.e. the Lowlands. He rallied the counts, dukes, and other princes around the Lowlands, entreating them all to join forces and to head off and take back Jerusalem for Jesus. Some, such as the Count of Mons and Hanau, agreed. Others, such as Dirk II, the Count of Holland, did not. The Crusades would go on for at least the next 200 years, and what that meant is that during those two centuries, innumerable nobles of different ranks, as well as commoners either enlisted by force or voluntarily, would periodically disappear off to the Middle East. Thousands did not return, leaving various estates abandoned, and so these were then commonly seized by either the German or the French sovereigns. 
This left huge gaps in social positions, small vacuums of localized power, which in the towns that were growing in importance would then be filled by this rising class of patrician merchants. Generally, the Crusades fueled the undermining of feudalism that was occurring already with the process of urbanization as it got rid of thousands of the lower nobility. The internecine warfare that had been the lot of Europe's early Middle Ages also diminished from this point on, given how many warrior-minded people with swords went off and died in the Middle East, taking their enculturated militancy with them. And that brings us to this week's installment of Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. One of the leaders of the First Crusade was Godfrey of Bouillon, who, probably born in Belgium, was also the Duke of Brabant and, as mentioned, the Duke of Lower Lorraine. He would have been the first king of Jerusalem, except he technically refused that title and became instead the Defender of the Holy Sepulchre. However, his son would be invested with the title of king. Therefore, not only was the first king of Jerusalem from the Lowlands, but he also carried the favorite name of Lowlander nobility to prove it. If you've ever wondered why the first king of Jerusalem was called Baldwin, well, now you know. We bet you didn't know he was Dutch. Importantly, although thousands of people did not return from going a crusading, many others did. And with them, they brought back stuff from the Middle East. Artifacts, documents, wealth, knowledge, skills, information. All that had been picked up and or sacked on their travels and time in the Islamic world. Which, at this point, is right in the middle of its golden age. Talking of golden ages, we're going to bring one in for ourselves by taking an ad break. We'll see you on the other side. Coming into the 12th century then, lots of different elements are changing Lowlander society. There's a new, roughly hewn relationship being forged between the nobility and the common class. There's this urbanization taking place, the rise of the power of commerce, and then a good dollop of people setting off on crusades, but then also some coming back and bringing stuff with them. And then, as always, there's the church. We've already mentioned how various pious religious orders by this time were coming to have a huge influence on social life in the lowlands. The Cistercians had come out of Burgundy from the Sitto Abbey, which was founded in 1098. However, in 1115, one of their members, called Bernard of Clairvaux, founded another abbey and then went about building immense influence within the Catholic hierarchy. He undertook two journeys into the lowlands and founded different Cistercian abbeys there. He would also be the main figure to preach the Second Crusade, and when that ended in absolute failure, was the one who bore the weight of blame for it. But never mind that. The important thing is that the Cistercian movement had entered the lowlands and was strengthened through the actions of Bernard and another monk called Norbert of Xanten from the Rhineland. He too founded monasteries in the lowlands and, together with Bernard, became so influential as to be attendant within the court of the emperor when he was in the lowlands. Bernard and Norbert and other Cistercians 
taught that ancient texts could give specific and exact rules, and not just guidelines for how one could be the best monk possible and for how wholesome Christian communities could and should function. What this did was promote the intensified gathering, reading, and interpreting of as many texts as possible. This was convenient since with these returning crusaders, so much ancient material was becoming known, having been begged, borrowed, or stolen from the Islamic world. This was all eaten up by these monks living their frugal, pious lives. So occurred what historians refer to as the 12th century renaissance in the lowlands. Historian Paul Ablasser, in his History of the Netherlands, puts it that, quote, other important aspects of this renewal of learning were the revival of the study of Roman law and ancient philosophy, the systemization of canon law and theology, and a more self-conscious sense of human individuality, end quote. So then, as well as urbanization causing the rise of a patrician class within towns and the first big ruptures of absolute feudalism in Europe, now there was a general promotion of learning that only served to increase self-empowerment. All of these changes began to forge a new relationship between rulers and the ruled. However, this did not happen suddenly or smoothly. It was a rearranging of temporal power, even if those involved did not know it at the time. And it would cause a lot of tensions. The city of Lille, in 1127, was ruled by the Count of Flanders and Hanau. One day, the Count rode into the city to reclaim a runaway serf, but he was chased off by the locals, who had armed themselves against him. Apparently, some amongst the Count's retinue were even beaten up and thrown into the swamp. The Count soon returned with his forces and besieged Lille, forcing the citizens to pay 1,400 marks of silver. Although they had been put down by the Count, the town citizens had clearly been emboldened by their newfound collective strength and were willing to stand up to their rulers. Early the next year, the same Count of Flanders, whose name, by the way, was Charles, would be involved in another example of how this fragile new relationship between the towns and the old nobility could so easily disintegrate. With the rise of towns and mercantilism, people originally of the common class could now acquire enough power through their money to rival the power of the lower nobility. They likely would have harbored dreams to become nobility themselves. One such family in Bruges, the Erembalds, went about trying to turn such dreams into reality. Charles, however, the Count of Flanders, felt that they had become a bit big for their britches and were wielding a little bit too much power and influence. They were of servile descent, so Charles had them legally defined as serfs. They tried to buy him off, but with no success. Charles was intent on making a statement. The thing is that their influence had allowed members of their family to take positions close to Charles. His chamberlain, as well as the castellan of Bruges, were both affiliated with the Erembold family. So they all conspired. One day, whilst Charles was attending Mass in the church of the castle of Bruges, he was murdered. One cannot blame the Erembolds if they had been looking at the recent history of their region and thinking, well, this is how they do it, and it usually leads to a handy marriage and some power. However, 
Entrance into the ranks of the nobility was not to be the Erembold's due. 27 conspirators were caught alive following the murder. All of them were thrown off the highest tower of the castle, and everything they owned was distributed amongst local barons. Charles's murder, in fact, caused so much outrage amongst all classes. Immediately upon his death, he was portrayed as a benevolent and kind ruler, and so was given and still carries the appellation Charles the Good. The shocking event of his murder was talked about around Europe. It showed how volatile this new relationship between lords and cities now was. Many ruling nobles started to take a different tack. Some saw that the prosperous cities could actually be beneficial to themselves in different ways, politically, militarily, and most importantly, economically. Ruling lords had rights and needed money, and towns had money and needed rights. So they began to make trade-offs and use the growing commercial power of the towns to their benefit. Privileges for taxes, basically. Charles the Good had died without issue, and so the question of his succession sparked a civil war that would end up in the Count of Alsace, Philip, becoming the new Count of Flanders. He is a fine example of an upper noble adjusting to the intellectualism of the 12th century renaissance and to the change in social structure taking place with urbanization. He started to grant privileges to the wealthiest, most productive towns in Flanders. In 1170, he then took a leaf out of the codified law book of ancient Rome, a hot topic within the discussions and writings happening at the time of the 12th century renaissance, and he came up with something called the Great Charter. This codified the laws governing those towns, Bruges, Ghent, Lille, Arras, Douai, Ypres, and St. Omer. So, with uniform law and beginning to acquire privileges, these towns were on their way to gaining city rights. City rights was a collection of privileges that included the permission to build a wall, having a marketplace, having their own court and trials, having the right to charge tolls, the right to levy taxes, and the right to mint coins. Once accumulated, these all made the town stronger, able to regulate the commerce within them, and to be of benefit to the Count's ability to get taxes for himself. In terms of how our modern world has developed, Towns gaining their own right to be tried according to reason by a town jury is perhaps the most important part of what this episode is about. Gaining some level of control of judicial processes within the town, having means to regulate the marketplace, and acquiring rights for members of the town to defend themselves and make decisions for themselves are components that define what we consider as modern societies today. Before this time, the feudal system had forced most people to be stuck in bondage, tied to the land and totally deprived of any kind of political rights. With the rise of towns during this period of urbanization, non-noble people were for the first time able to put their fingers onto the scales of power and at least begin to try and balance it more in their favor. So how exactly did these new towns function? Well, a ruling elite of patricians controlled local affairs through the establishment of town councils. In towns such as Bruges and Ghent, with populations of more than 20,000 people, perhaps 100 people from amongst this wealthy elite would form the councils. 
they would serve inexhaustible terms. Aldermen and burgemeisters were appointed by these councilmen, usually from amongst their ranks, and from these positions of power, taxes were collected and disputes and matters of justice were settled. There was also a sheriff who was the representative of the count, and so was at that weird junction of where the town's interests and the count's interests had to meet. This was a social revolution indeed, and probably the main priority was the establishment of order within towns. The citizenry of one of these new urban centres consisted of many different people of many different origin, with different ideas of ethical behaviour. In addition to this, many transient people would have been coming and going. Conflicts would arise, disputes and disagreements would cause commotion. The patrician class held power by their control of the marketplace and their capital wealth, and conflicts caused disruption and uncertainty. It was in their and everybody's interest that there be judicial processes and laws governing what people could do within town borders. For instance, people who were not citizens were not allowed to carry weapons. Individuals could not just go out and seek revenge for perceived slights. This was still, relative to modern days, a particularly violent era, and the feudal justice system was based on irrationality. For instance, people were tried by ordeal, like being held in fire to see if they were guilty. If you survive fire, you're innocent. Yay! Also, disputes could be settled by dueling. These were traditions upheld by the old nobility. As this new mercantile class began to fuse with the old nobility in the governance of towns, although they sought to acquire similar status rights as them, it was even more in their interest to have a stable community. So, although it took some time for irrational justice terms to become eradicated, this is what did eventually happen during this whole urbanization process. Many people living in confined spaces cannot be sustained without some level of equanimity, and so trial by ordeal and dueling became replaced with more rational things such as evidence and testimony made by reliable people. For example, in Valenciennes in 1114, evidence was established when two identical testimonies were given by quote-unquote men of the peace. As historian Vim Blockman writes, quote, The urban community designed its own system of rational values, which were different from the ecclesiastical and feudal traditions, and were based on the equality of rights between citizens, end quote. Another issue that arose in all of this is that all this commercial wealth depended on the movement of goods from place to place, and goods don't move themselves, but need to be carried and escorted by people. A citizen might be protected by their city's rights within its borders, but the land outside those borders was still the Lord's domains. Once past the city's walls, people were again subject to the vagaries of their Lord's rule. Tradesmen, merchants, and other invested parties in towns began to collaborate with their counterparts in other towns, so as to provide protection for people traveling between them and protection for their goods. Cooperatives were formed by the collaborating guild members of different towns, which would provide protection en route between towns traveling in convoys that were known as Hansa. These cooperatives would also work to establish political representation that could then fight for the town's ability to secure rights that were so-called extra muros, outside the walls. 
When it came to civil defence, town militia were established, which excluded only the poor. At night, the town's streets and walls were guarded and patrolled by well-trained and committed people of all different walks of life, from shopkeepers to coppersmiths to bakers, and they were then led by members of the same ruling patrician elite. The evidence suggests that this process in Flanders was reflected in the northern low countries. Urbanization began to accelerate in Brabant and Holland in the 11th and 12th centuries, but there were important differences from how it happened in the north to how it had happened in the south. Firstly, for anyone holding sway or rule in coastal areas like Holland, Zeeland or Friesland, the need for water defence took on a communal importance. It was crucial that the liege lords be involved and facilitative of efforts to dig ditches and canals, build dikes and dams, and to drain water out of lakes to create polders. The Counts of Holland in particular seem to have been quite sensitive to the needs of their people as regarded not drowning. In the northeast, such as in Helders and the Overstick, similar deforestation as what had been seen in the south occurred. Here, however, there is evidence of civil organisations working to conserve and protect woodlands as well. During this period, which saw so many people leaving farms and gravitating to towns, the close proximity to water would have other great consequences. Industries specific to water, specifically shipbuilding and fishing, would now accelerate in productivity and importance. Over the next 500 years, these industries would propel the northern provinces from the periphery of European affairs to the centre. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. In this episode, we've looked at how some of those grassroots development in agriculture led to this massive social shift, as people had gone out looking for work and opportunities, moving away from the indentured servitude on feudal estates, they concentrated together in towns. The presence of bigger markets created bigger demands for goods. Merchants began to get wealthier and wealthier, meeting these demands via the trade routes that connected growing towns with large populations of specialized workers. In the north, for this to happen successfully though, first the people there would need to drain the swamp. And that is what we are going to check out in the next episode of the History of the Netherlands. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.